Hello and welcome to episode number 137 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Thursday, March 20th, 2014. I know I previously said I would try to stick to the Monday release schedule, and here I am releasing on a Thursday, but I really wanted to get this interview out and published. This is an interview from the archives that was recorded back in 2011 with holistic management practitioner, rancher, and consultant Walt Davis. As I went through and listened to the interview, I realized that uh, many of the things that Walt talks about are very relevant today still and very important I was really transfixed by some of Walt's words as I had not heard this interview in quite a long time. So I'm sure you'll get something good and productive out of listening to this interview. I haven't had any recent donations to the podcast, but I'd like to let you all know that the donations that I have received, I've been taking the proceeds from that and reinvesting them in some of the Arduino technology that has recently been featured on the Agro Innovations podcast. So those donations are being put to good use and I'm using it to further the open source agricultural technology that we talk about so much here on the podcast and that has so many potential applications. And you'll be seeing some of those applications on the Agro Innovations podcast and blog site uh, in the near future. So if you could keep those donations coming in, uh, we can keep investing in some of these technologies and build them out even faster. Click on the PayPal donate button on the Agro Innovations podcast website and send some money my way to do so. This week I appeared in an episode of the Sea Realm podcast, the most recent episode of the Sea Realm podcast, where the longtime host and producer of that podcast, KMO, and I discuss a recent article by Nafiz Ahmed about collapse. And this article discusses a NASA-funded study that shows the mathematical dynamics of collapse related to inequality and depletion of natural resources. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, it's more of a high-level philosophical type discussion. Uh, you should check it out. I will link to that in the show notes for this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. And I hope to have KMO back on the Agro Innovations Podcast uh, sometime soon. This interview with Walt Davis will be published in two parts. Uh, the next part will hopefully be out sometime next week, if not then the following week. But as I said earlier, it's a real gem, so sit back and enjoy my interview with Walt Davis. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined once again by farmer, rancher, consultant, and author, Walt Davis. Walt Davis, welcome back to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you, Frank. I'm very happy to be here. Well, your last episode uh, wasn't all that long ago, actually, and it was received very well. In fact, some of the listeners said that they could listen to Walt Davis talk all day about uh, many of the things that you talked about last time. So with that in mind, and also the fact that you have just come out with a new book, uh, I, I was made aware of that via an email. So once I saw that, I said, well, we got to get Walt Davis back on the podcast. So here we are. Well, thank you, Frank. And I, I appreciate the fellow that you listen to me all day. My wife says she doesn't particularly care to listen to me all day, but... Uh... I have been known to, to talk a little bit. Well, I'm sure uh, 
everybody's spouses sometimes get tired of listening to the to their significant other all day. But let's get into this book that you have written okay. a book. It's called How Not to Go Broke Ranching. And this has just recently come out. Is this a self-published book? It is, uh, through CreateSpace, which is a, is a, an Amazon company. Okay, well, we'll, of course, uh, include information for people so that they can get that book at, at the sure. end of the show. Um, but let's get into the actual content of the book. Now, you say this book is about mistakes that you've made as a rancher. One of the things that you mentioned to me was that ranching is not currently profitable in the United States, nor is it sustainable. Can you talk a little bit about this? Sure, and I I feel very strongly on this. I uh, some of your listeners may not know my background. I I came into came out of an old ranching family. Uh, that's what my people have done for many years. And I went to Texas A and M College, which tells you how long ago that was, and got a degree in animal husbandry. And when I got out of college, out of graduate school, I took over management of family ranch in Oklahoma and using all of the best management practices of the time I took a profitable ranch real close to bankruptcy anyway to make a long story short uh, finally learned a little bit more about what I should be doing instead of what I was being told to do uh, and finally managed to build a, a, a profitable and sustainable ranch that became a, a real pleasure to operate. And thinking about this, about, uh, I think, 1999 or sometime in there, I wrote a little a little track called How to Go Broke Ranching Without Hardly Trying. And in it, it was, it was a force, intended as a force, but it goes through some of the things that uh, we as ranchers and farmers just know that we absolutely have to do from having heavy weaning weights to uh, putting up hay, the whole the whole thing. Anyway, that that little track was very well received. In fact, I, I found out later it's been republished in South America and in Australia and several other places. It kind of struck a nerve with some people because they could recognize things that they were doing or that their neighbors were doing that really don't make a lot of sense. So building on that, and then the fact that a little over a year ago I took a fall and got busted up pretty good and wasn't able to do a whole lot, so I went back and started again on putting together this book. Uh, I don't recommend breaking bones to, to get the time to to write, but that, that got me to sit down and do it anyway, so maybe that's the only way I would have done it. Uh it, the book is, is basically it's a history of ranching, a very short history of ranching, simply for the reason that I felt the need to explain some of the attitudes that we as ranchers uh, have developed over the years. But it's not a it's not a it's not a history, and it's certainly not a how-to book. What I have tried to do is to lay out some of the principles and. People that are familiar with holistic management will recognize a lot of the terminology and a lot of the the uh, concepts from holistic management. But 
to delve into certain principles that I think are important and then to try to illustrate those principles with examples of both of my own experience and, and experience of ranchers that I've, I've operated and worked with over the years. It, uh, it's been a, it's been a, well, I don't know who said it, but somewhere along the line I ran into a quotation, if you want to learn a subject, try to teach it. And I'm, I'm, I understand that quotation a lot better now than I did before I started to read this, this book. It, uh, it's one thing to, um, come up with a management scheme with the management practices that work on your particular ranch. And it's perhaps a lot harder to explain that, those practices and the, and the rationale behind those practices to an outside party. In fact, just recently I had the opportunity to talk to a, an extremely good ranch manager, uh, one of the best that I know of, and he and I got a little bit crosswise, um, or I realized that he was a little crosswise with me, and it, it took me a minute to figure out why. What the problem was, he felt like I was criticizing him for using cottonseed meal as a protein supplement uh, in his in his cow herd, and that certainly was not my intention. Uh, what what I was trying to do was to point out that the only reason that he needed to use a protein supplement on that cow herd was that he was out of sync with the cycles of his of his forage growth. And he was in a lot better sync than most people. A big part of his problem was it not actually that that he was out of sync, but he felt like that to be a good husbandman, he had to offer these cattle protein supplements in the wintertime. Well, these cows are just statistics. They came in April. Um, they're a good kind of cattle, a moderate size, moderate milking. In other words, he's done a lot of the things that I've talked about in the book. And my only comment, the reason I brought it up was, hey, I really don't think you need to spend that money. Um, so that's the approach that I've tried to take with this, is to point out to people that there are a lot of things that we do as ranchers that are not only unnecessary, they're counterproductive. Well, you said... Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You said that your book is not a history but it does go into a brief history of ranching, and that is something that I don't know that much about, and perhaps many listeners don't know about that either. I wonder if you could give us your brief history in kind of a synopsis. Okay. Sure. It, uh, ranching in the United States uh, originated with the Spanish, well, with the Spanish conquistadors, really, when they came into what is now uh, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California. And they brought cattle as well as sheep and hogs with them as, as walking commissaries and also horses. Um, uh, with the exception of sheep, 
were native to the United States. And the animals that either escaped or were lost or whatever, basically mainly cattle and horses, formed the backbone of the ranching industry in the United States. As early as the 1600s, there were pretty good populations of wild cattle living in the brush country between the Nueces and the Rio Grande River. And these cattle were uh, very well adapted to that life down there, and um, they, didn't, they did fine, thank you, but had very little pressure from humans simply because there were no humans in the area other than uh, some of the Kuwaitic and Indians on that in south of there that really didn't have a lot of interest in, in uh, certainly had no interest in being in the cattle business, but their interest was maybe catching a fat calf every once in a while. When the Anglo settlers finally came into the country, uh, the Spanish and later the Mexicans had developed an industry based on primarily cattle grazing and all of the uh, uh, practices and, and uh, well, how many words are in our language today from that area? Lariat uh, comes from the Spanish lariata, the rope. Um, most of our, our horse handling techniques and a lot of our cattle handling techniques came from the early Spanish and later and later Mexican. So that was more or less the history when the Anglos got here. We like to think that we took it and modernized it, and perhaps we did, but the main thing that happened was when the Civil War came along, uh, most of the men of fighting age left to go to the war, and when they did, uh, the Plains tribes, particularly the Comanche and the Kiowa, and the Lapan Apache pushed back, in fact, they pushed the frontier back a hundred miles or more. And in the process, released thousands more cattle that basically went wild. When the war was finally over and the young men came back, uh, wild cattle and wild horses were one of the few things in Texas that had any abundance, and even they had no value because there was no market for them. My grandfather, who was of an age to be my great-grandfather, born in 1848, uh, when he was 16, 17 years old, he was, his father had died, he was the head of the family, a mother and eight siblings to care for. And he began to rebuild the family fortunes by going into the brush country, catching wild cattle, and driving them out. Uh, first to be slaughtered for beef and tallow on the, the Gulf Coast around Indianola, and later to build his own herds uh, and to trail into Missouri and later Kansas. So these wild cattle, and wild horses for that matter, formed the basis of the ranching industry in the United States and, and well into Canada. And that start um, kind of gave us a, 
it gave us the feeling of the way things are supposed to be. Uh, not necessarily the way things ought to be, but well, to my granddad. Um, he had no opportunity to go to school. He, he spent less than nine months in school altogether. But he had a great desire to learn. He got a, had a school teacher carve the alphabet on his saddle so that he could learn to read, taught himself to read. And when he died, he was a well-educated man. I like to think that he typified some of the attitudes that have come down in the ranching industry over the years. Um, Self-reliance, independence, and a basic honesty. Uh, it, uh, it perhaps naive to think that, or I'm, not, I'm not so naive to think that these characteristics were universal. But I think they were more common than we've given, been led to believe by watching the Western movies. Um, this was a time when right and wrong were still absolutes, and people were expected to live that way, and most people did. The ones that didn't were, were ostracized. So anyway, that's that's sufficient on the history, I think. it uh, It was a time that People had to develop self-reliance. They had to develop a sense of honesty. My grandfather bought and sold thousands of cattle and horses with no more than a handshake. There were no contracts. There were no legal documents written up. If he told a man he'd deliver so many cattle on such such a date for such a price, he did it, as did most other people. This is, is the background of the, of the ranching industry. Uh, I like to think it's a very good one, and I, I think that a lot of those attitudes are still prevalent. Well, one of the things your book also talks about is what ranching is today and why it is that way. Can can you ex- talk a little bit about what your book has to sure. say about that? Um, we, we've kind of we've lost our way in a lot of ways. Uh, at one time, ranching was about as basic as you could get. You let the cattle eat the grass, not too much, not too often. Uh, you let the well-adapted ones reproduce, and every so often you you walk or take some of the fat ones to market, and you repeat annually. And that is ranching basically in a nutshell. You use the miracle of solar energy and photosynthesis for the grass to produce energy and then through an animal leak, be it a cattle or a sheep or a buffalo or whatever, you convert that solar plant energy into animal energy and therefore into wealth. One of the things that I try to bring out is that there's more ways to produce wealth with grazing than just beef or milk or or wool. Um, One of the biggest values that we as ranchers can offer to society in general is the ability to restore damaged watersheds. 
good, good grazing management is the only method that I'm aware of that is financially viable to restore the hydrological, good hydrological characteristics over broad areas. Good grazing management can be used to improve the water cycle, um, which, in my opinion, is going to be water is going to be one of the most valuable commodities in the world very shortly. We already we've squandered a wealth of, of water, and if we don't learn how to uh, use what we have and capture more of what we are offered, then it's going to get even worse. I'm of the opinion that every major city in the United States, every community in the United States, should be doing everything they could to help the people who are managing the land that makes up their watershed in a rational and logical manner. I don't want them telling me what I can or can't do on my land, but I would like to see more understanding in the society in general about what constitutes a healthy watershed. I heard a town manager from South Texas one time make a statement that was so asinine that it just sent shivers down my back. He, he was the opinion that the watershed above his lake should be managed to promote bare ground so more water would run off. Um, that's what's wrong with the watershed now is that because of poor farming practices and abusive grazing, it has a lot of water, a lot of bare ground on it. And instead of having water captured into the soil and later into lower stratas through an effective water cycle, it either falls, big part of it runs off down the creek, small part of it soaks in, but most of that evaporates back out before it can be utilized by plants. And very little gets stored in the lower aquifers where it could be released slowly over time and maintain stream flow without the hideous losses to evaporation that occur in that part of the world. So ranchers, farmers, should be the best friends that city planners have. But it's going to take some education on both sides to make them see that. Uh, have I covered your question there? I'm, I kind of got started and got... got uh, off the subject a little bit. Yeah, well, the question was, um, what is ranching today and why? Okay. Well, let me let me back up and start over then. Let, and maybe not start completely over. Ranching has become, in most instances, too many instances, an industrial process rather than a biological process. Uh, when I got out of graduate school and took over the ranch in Oklahoma, I spent an inordinate amount of money and time on things. I was using the best soil fertility program, the best weed control program, the best animal health immunization program, the best 
nutrition supplementation, and on and on and on, putting a lot of money into the operation. We produced a lot of product, a lot of beef, a lot of pecan. But the program was not financially stable, and it was not sustainable. Many of the things that we were doing, for instance, the nitrogen fertilizer on grass, while the short-term effects were quite good and we produced a lot of pasture, the long-term effects were hideous because we were destroying the organic content of our soils. We were destroying the life in the soils that are the things that provide real fertility over a long period of time, real productivity to the soil. Many of the many of the practices that were recommended that I was using, for instance, spraying horn flies. I sprayed horn flies religiously every 28 to 30 days from sometime in May until we had a hard frost, simply because I had read all the literature that X number of horn flies will bleed X amount of blood from each animal, and this will cost you so much money. So I was spraying the horn flies, killing the horn flies. What I couldn't see is that I was also killing all of the beneficial insects that tend to hold pests like the horn fly in check. When I was in that spraying mode, there was not a dung beetle on that entire ranch. There were no uh, earthworms to speak of, and the soil health was hideous. What I needed to do was not have a better way to kill horn flies. I needed to understand why the horn flies were such a problem and try to short circuit that that's uh, pest producing cycle. When we finally stopped with the poisons, and it was not just insect poison. We were I was poisoning stomach worms, I was I was killing coyotes, I was uh killing weeds, I was killing anything and everything that I felt was antagonistic. I became fixated on fighting what I don't want instead of promoting those things that I do want. Now, that sounds sophomoric, but it's not. It's, it's very profound. When we stop trying to kill what it is that we don't want and concentrate on promoting the conditions that we do want, an awful lot of these things, like horn flies, like stomach worms, become a non-problem. Weeds become a non-problem. I can't, in the short time that we have available, go into all of the techniques and methods, but it comes down to, to one thing, promoting life. Agriculture should be the science, uh, the art of promoting life so that we can scrape some of the excess off the top for our own use. We've become fixated on killing. Everything that we use in, in agriculture is, has the word side on it. Uh, herbicide, vermicide, fungicide, pesticides of all kinds. Uh, we are constantly attempting to kill something. And this, we got quite effective at, at killing some of these things. The problem is, all of these 
pesticides have unintended consequences. I was killing the hornflies, you bet, but I was also killing the striped wasps that prey on the hornflies and on the, on the horseflies and on the faceflies. I was also killing the dung beetles that desiccate the dung and bury it so that the hornflies don't hatch. I was killing the spiders that catch a big percentage of the young adult flies, either heel flies or, or uh, horn flies as they emerge from the ground. I was killing the life in the soil so that I basically had a dead soil with none of the nematodes and other predators that prey upon things that hatch in the soil, like or in soil and in the manure, um, pecan weevils, grasshoppers, uh, on and on and on, pest organisms that hatch in the soil. When I sterilized the soil, I took the pressure off of those organisms. So instead of making things better, I was making things worse. Agriculture today is still basically in that situation. We have, we have lost sight of what we should be doing, which is using solar energy, free solar energy by the main, to produce wealth and doing it in such a way that it is sustainable over a long period of time. The beauty part of holistic management is that it gets better. The longer you do it, the better it gets. I have in this book, I go into the concept of biological capital, which is at least as, as valuable as the fiscal capital that you have in the bank. If you're in agriculture, having biological capital, which is basically just biodiversity, high biodiversity, plus the effects of having high biodiversity, is your real wealth. It's the pop healthy populations of plants and animals that are made up of healthy individuals. It's, uh, it's the soil that is vibrant with life because there is a, a lot of organic matter in it. It's the animals that are adapted to the conditions on your operation. All of these things make up biological capital. And this biological capital is what allows the rancher to survive the drought of the century or the, the market wreck. It's the thing that gives them flexibility and sustainability over time. You don't go broke in the ranching business by weaning because your calves wean off 50 pounds like. You go broke in the ranching business because you mess a calf crop, because you lose your, your forage standard. The, cat, the catastrophic things are what puts you out. But we can prevent most of those catastrophic events with good management. If we understand what the conditions are that we want to have, then we can plan to have those conditions. And that's not Pollyanna. That's speaking. That's, uh, that's a grizzled old cowboy that's done to the wars. If you can conceive of a condition 
If it is a feasible condition, then you can plan to have it occur. Grazing management is going to be one of the best tools in our box, but it has to be used in conjunction with the understanding of the value of biological diversity, of the value of the ecological processes, water cycles, energy cycles, uh, I mean energy flow, mineral cycles, and I still use the term biological succession because I think it's more descriptive than community dynamics. Uh, but regardless, the information is there, and it's up to us to, if we wish to succeed in this business, to uh, wake up and realize that there are no silver bullets out there that we can go buy to cure our uh, problem, whatever it is. And then a lot of our problems are actually not problems. All their symptoms of of uh, deeper underlying deeper problems. Uh, for instance, uh, internal parasites, a real good example. For years and years, I wormed my cow herd twice a year because that was recommended practice. Worm my calves, my calves usually three times a year. And uh, one time I had goats there on that place, and we wormed them regularly. The last 20 years that I was in the cattle business, I didn't worm any cattle, not, not a single time. I didn't even worm the sheep that I brought into the program. Uh, when everybody knows you have to worm sheep or they will all die tomorrow. But by looking at why the stomach worms or the internal parasites reach such concentrations and then changing my management to short circuit those conditions, I was able to completely get away, do away with internal parasites, any, any chemical treatment of internal parasites. Now, did I have some internal parasites? I certainly did. And occasionally I'd have sheep that couldn't, couldn't function under my program. And what I would do there, I'd pick those animals up, worm them, and then sell them. But by managing to disrupt the life cycle of those parasites, and also selecting for better genetic resistance in the animals that I kept, I was basically able to take internal parasites and most external parasites and put them in the, the category of not problems. This is not something, and they certainly were delegated to, this is not somewhere we're going to spend money. When I bought in cattle from outside, which I did for a number of years, I would worm those stalker cattle before I put them into my country because I didn't know their history. But if I had that to do over, I probably would have would even stop that. Um, when you look at the physiology of the situation, a lot of times things that are extremely logical suddenly you realize they're perhaps not so logical. Think about what happens when we use a good, effective internal parasite medication, which incidentally they are, to my knowledge, no vermicides on the market right now that are truly effective. 
uh, internal parasites that develop resistance to just about everything that's on the market. But anyway, let's assume we've still got a got a a very effective wormer material. We go in and we worm a sheep or a cattle, and we knock out the vast majority of the parasites that are in that animal. What happens? Immediately, that animal stops producing antibodies, which it produces in the presence of the foreign protein, the worms, to fight infestation with this with this foreign protein, the worm. When it stops producing antibodies, the level of antibodies in its blood drops, and the next time that that animal is exposed to parasites, then instead of having a good level of antibody in its blood and perhaps one parasite in, I don't know, a thousand or maybe a hundred, being able to implant in the gut and take up residence in the animal, suddenly 10 times that number are able to become residents of the animal. And suddenly we have an animal that has a more infestation than it did when we wormed it the first time. And we get on that roller coaster. Heavy parasitation, knock it down with a treatment. It builds back to high levels again, and we knock it down again. At one time, my little sister in West Texas wormed her sheep flock nine times a year. I'm not going to do that. From a number of reasons, I'm not going to do that. Too much of what we do in agriculture today is not only unnecessary, it's counterproductive. That concludes my interview with holistic management practitioner and consultant Walt Davis. Stay tuned for the next episode of the podcast where I'll feature part two of my interview with Walt and more great wisdom coming your way from his sector. Thanks to everybody who supports the Agro-Innovations podcast and everybody who listens. I want you listeners to know that I really don't like Facebook that much anymore, and I try to use it as little as possible. I find that the interface is pretty clunky, and it's just kind of gone downhill in a lot of ways over the years. So I just continue to post the new episodes of the podcast on Facebook as they come out, but that's about it. Uh, if you're looking for something more interactive, you might want to try the Agro Innovations uh, website, the comment feed there. And my Twitter is pretty active on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Twitter is at Agro Innovations. So sorry to all you Facebook lovers. Um, I just can't do Facebook anymore. But I will continue, like I said, to post the new episodes of the podcast on Facebook. And I also have a little uh, G Plus group for people who are interested in Arduino for Agriculture. It's not extremely active, but uh, it's a little collection of people who are interested in that topic, and I do post things there from time to time, so you may want to check that out as well. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.